Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everyone. Rick Thomas here. Thank you so much for joining me. Have you been to our coffee shop? It is lifeovercoffee.com. I would love for you to check it out. We have thousands upon thousands of resources that are free to you. We bring hope and help to you and others. We want to create conversations that lead to transformation, and I trust that what I am in the middle of here is doing exactly that. I am sharing with you chapter by chapter of my book, Help, My Marriage Has Grown Cold. You can get a free download of that book at our store, lifeovercoffee.com. Go look for that title. You can download it. It is yours. Print it off. Mark it up. Use it as homework. Use it in small group discussions. Use it personally. Use it in dating, courting, marriage. This is about my friend Mabel. She found herself in a marriage where she was not she was not paying attention the way that she should, and now she is regretting it, but we are making some progress. And so this is chapter four. The title of it is Start with the Gospel. And so after you get the free download, help. My marriage has grown cold. You can also go back through and read each one of these nine articles or nine chapters from the book. You can listen to them, and of course, you can watch the video. Chapter number one, it was the situation. Chapter number two, we started investigating her theology. Chapter number three, we were getting into her orthopraxy, specifically this idea of needs. Mabel had an expanded list of needs. She had inserted a few desires that she had pumped up, and now they have morphed into the area of need, which in reality, theologically speaking, that is not true, but practically speaking, they were controlling us. And as James says, what causes quarrels and and what causes conflict, is it not this, that we crave, we desire, and we do not have, so we murder each other in our hearts, or as Biff was doing to Mabel, he was yelling at her, in rage. But what James is saying here is that our desires have too much control over our minds. I am saying that when that happens, the desire, and by the way, as I stated earlier in chapter number three, the desire can be good, and that is the thing that will trip us up more than bad desires, because we intuitively know bad desires are not good, so we need to stay away from them. But good desires can deceive us, we can allow ourselves to be deceived because they are good, and so we pump them up, and then they become what I call needs, and now the needs are controlling us. And when I talk about needs controlling us or having an extended list of needs, things that really aren't needs, almost always the common rebuttal is to this need theory concept is that we need love. Now, I understand the perspective, but the truth is, is that we need a relationship with God. That is what we need. We need to recognize that we are broken before God and we need Him to regenerate us so we can be born again. We don't start by saying, Oh God, I am a sinner and I need for you to love me. Oh God, I am, I'm just, just, covered. I'm just inundated with total depravity, and I need you to love me. No. 
I'm a total depraved creature with no hope, no help. There's no way that I can save myself. I don't need love. I need for God to regenerate me. Now, by the way, when God regenerates me, there are, there's benefits. And one of those benefits is I will begin to experience the love of God. But what I need is a relationship with him. I need for him to break into my cold, futile, dark, depraved heart and cause me to be born again. That is my need. And of course, again, with that need, there will be many benefits like love, for example. If we have a relationship with God and our relationship with him is proper, then our demands on other humans to meet our cravings for love, for example, it should not be controlling to us because we are receiving already the unfathomable love of God. This is why I spent time in chapter 2 with Mabel of getting into her theology because the truth is she believed in a God that did not exist. She believed in a fairy tale, a divine butler, a dream weaver, because her craving for love from Biff was motivating her in an unwitting way to manipulate God as though he could be manipulated to give her the love that she wanted. Because love was the biggest thing in her mind, she did not recognize how controlling that was, which was skewing her theology and manipulating her relationship with Biff. If we are practically realizing and resting in the gospel, and that is the, chap that is the title of the chapter here, number four, start with the gospel. And if we are practically realizing and resting in the gospel, we can turn the tables on all of our relationships. Rather than being deficient takers, we can be abundant givers. And it really is about the direction that we are heading and the direction of our expectations. Unfortunately, because of the self-esteem culture that we have been inebriated in for the past 50 plus years, it is so easy for us to think from a me-centered perspective. And so our presupposition, the lens through which we look at life, starts with what we want, what we desire, what we crave, what we need, what other people should be doing for us. We can love others rather than expect others to meet our desires for love. What I'm saying here is that we can be Christ-like. But what does that mean? To be Christ-like means that the way to get something is to give. Now, there are many iterations, manifestations of Christ-likeness, but I just want to focus on that one stripe, that one brushstroke on the canvas. To be Christ-like in context of what I'm sharing with you here, the way to get is to give. Jesus did not come to earth so that we could love him, but so that he could love us, so that he could serve us. I mean, let's just put words in his mouth. Imagine if Christ had said, I need love. These people are not respecting me. These people are not meeting my needs. These people are not speaking my love language. Father, I'm not feeling accepted today. I'm feeling a bit rejected. It's not right. These selfish people are not meeting my need for love, and therefore I must do something to bend their good favor toward me. 
Perhaps I can manipulate them. My feelings are hurt, and I'm getting angry with these people who seem determined not to meet my needs. Those words placed in Jesus' mouth sound like what they exactly are, an unknown tongue, because that is not how he communicated at all. And if we're going to be Christ-like, then that cannot be in our thinking as well. Christ was so connected to his Father that no one could control him, even with their hurtful opinions and disappointing acts of self-centered love. He was not manipulatable because he had a relationship with his Father. And because he had a relationship with his father, he was receiving love, which positioned him to be a giver, not a manipulative, demanding taker. He was not defensive while responding to others, but on the offensive. He set himself to give love rather than waiting for someone to meet his list of needs. Other people did not control him because he knew his position and he knew his purpose. His position with the Father, he was completely, the Father was completely pleased and satisfied with him. Jesus Christ received the full love of the Father, which established his purpose, what he came to do, which By the way, the only thing that mattered was his relationship with the Father, and when that is right, it will establish your purpose, how you are supposed to live in your world. He was led and loved by his Father. Therefore, the whims of the people could not manage him. Years ago, I heard Paul Tripp present a five-step analysis of what happens when a person distorts and twists desires into needs. I've been talking about over the past couple of chapters that we have good desires, but sometimes we can pump up those desires until... Like an overblown ball, now they have become exaggerated and distorted, and now we redefine them, and we call those needs. And whenever we take a good desire that we could live with or live without and turn it into a need, then we're going to be demanding, we're going to set up an expectation which will always lead to disappointment. And then when we are disappointed because we have redefined a desire to a need, we're going to punish somebody because they did not meet that desire. And so in his little sequence here, I want to share it with you. There are five steps, and I think it will make sense to all of us because I know all of us have done this. And so number one in the linkage is desire. Now, you could say a desire to put it in a a statement form. You should do blank and fill in the blank. You should do this for me. Now, there's there's nothing necessarily or inherently wrong with that statement. You can put virtually anything in that. You should go to the store for me. You should be quiet for the next little bit while I'm recording this podcast. You should take the dog for a walk. You should, you know, make a meal, etc. Those are desires, and those statements do not have to be infused with any kind of sinful motivation or any kind of sin at all. A normal desire that just lays on the surface of our lives, we communicate them regularly day-to-day with each other, we're fine. However, If that desire morphs into a need, then that is the second link in the sequence here. And so now it's gone from desire to need. Now, a need is a a completely different statement where a desire says you should do, fill in the blank, for me. 
A need says, you will do this for me. And you see what has happened here. Now there is an urgency. There is a criticalness. There's, there's almost like I need air. I need food. I need health. I need God to save me. Those are intensified statements that do rise to the realm of need. We absolutely need all of those things. But where our lack of carefulness can be is that when we change normal desires into a need, we're no longer saying you should do this for me, and I can take it or leave it. I'm fine. I won't be upset if you do not meet my desire. But when it turns into a need, we say you will do such and such for me. And that leads to point number three, which is an expectation. Because we have turned the desire into a need, now the statement sounds like this. I expect you to do Fill in the blank for me. And so now we are sitting there. We're watching television and we're waiting for the person to come upstairs and to fulfill that need that we placed upon them. As time goes by, they do not meet that need. They do not do, do that thing. And again, the need is never a need. It is just a desire. But because we turned it into a need, we have an expectation which will inevitably lead to number four in the sequence. It's disappointment. Disappointment says you did not do such and such for me. Now we're getting into the punitive territory. Because of what I did by redefining a desire to a need, now placing a demand upon them, I have an expectation that's automatically set up like a straw man. Of course, they're not going to meet it, so I'm going to be disappointed, which leads to number five, punishment. And the statement says you did not do meet that desire actually is what would go in the blank there. You did not do such and such for me, so I am going to make you pay. And so this is the big idea. Whenever our desires or our cravings morph into needs, we can expect this downward spiral to result in a sinful confrontation with the person not meeting our expectations or not meeting our desires. Mabel's life and her thoughts had been more about what she wanted from God than what God desired for her. And so again, she believed in a God that did not exist. She had a divine butler, a dream weaver. And because her desires were so controlling that it blinded her to the reality of how she was sabotaging her soul, even placing an expectation on God and reading signs into everything that was happening in front of her. And all of those signs were interpreted by this overinflated desire. And the the Lord was just one of the options that she used to bring her what she wanted. Biff was the other, which, by the way, complicated her devastation when his self-centeredness, his involvement in pornography, collided with her desire to want to be married. And so now we have two self-centered people intersecting post-marriage, and because they have an unsound theology, because they have desires that have run amok, have been pumped up to an overinflated ball into needs, there is no way they could keep from going down this downward spiral that I just outlined from desire to need to expectation to disappointment, and now they are punishing each other. Mabel had a twisted theology, and her and understanding of her Heavenly Father. 
Biff was a, another way to, to feel good about herself and her toolbox. The two men in her life, if I could say it that way, God the Father and Biff were two ways for her to be satisfied, and she was not reading the room. And sadly for Mabel, she married a selfish person, as we all do. Many of you have heard me say that that we marry sinners, and so everybody comes from the dinged and dented section of the grocery store. But if we're not careful and we don't have a sound theology that rolls out into a sound orthopraxy, well, sure, we marry sinners, but there's going to be complications that we will not be able to untangle because of our lack of soundness. Biff was not compliant in meeting her perceived needs, her overinflated desires. And when Biff was unwilling, Mabel became angry and critical and sad and self-pitying and unloving toward Biff. Do you see the punitive nature of disease, desires or disease? It's another way of saying it, but desires that run amok. And so now she is in the uh, the punitive sequence of this. A list that Paul Tripp has laid out for us. This selfish reciprocal interaction between them caused them to inch gradually away from each other until their home was too divided for them to ignore the problems any longer. And so you want to be careful here as you bring this up. I've said this a couple of times in the previous chapters that Mabel is that complexity of the victim-center construct that you will so often interact with in a counseling session. And so you have to build that relational bridge to communicate the other half of what is going on here, which is her center part. Uh, you don't want to lean too heavy into her victimness where she is devoid of all responsibility, but you also don't want to be harsh and unkind by laying out her sinful actions and her biblical responsibility too early, but at some point after that relational bridge is built and you have hit all the beats as we have been doing here through these chapters of laying a theological groundwork and orthopraxy groundwork we need to get into. Now it is time for you to address some issues in your life that are sinful, and if you truly want a changed life and a changed relationship with your husband, these are some of the things that you have to address. And so while Biff was not right in his selfish attitudes and and his responses to his wife, and I would not want you to hear that at all. We have to stay away from, stay out of all the ditches. Biff is not fully responsible, but he is not fully innocent, and the same applies to Mabel, that she needs to readjust her thinking into a God-centered way of looking at things rather than a Mabel-centered way. After I helped her unpack her thoughts and heart motivations and walk through her understanding of God, you could refer back to chapter 2 in this series, and how she had been selfishly relating to God, which is chapter 2 and chapter 3, I began to explore the implications and applications of the gospel more profoundly, which is here in chapter 4, titled Start With 
the gospel. Now, initially, Mabel was not satisfied with this approach to counseling. I spoke to this earlier, that when you are doing this substructure work, this foundational work in a person's life, because we're so built and wired and geared toward instant gratification, I mean, we're going through the drive-through here, and we need it now. We don't want to wait. Well, that maps over into how we think about counseling. I have a marriage problem, so let's just talk above the ground. Uh, Let's do the counseling, best practices, communication tips so that we can change our marriage behaviorally. And what people miss is that we have to unearth all of this junk that is underneath before we can ever start building. That's why the analogy of building a structure or building a house is very helpful here. You can see... um, a, a general contractor where they clear, they clear off the property or, or clear off the, the place where they're going to put uh, some buildings. And it seems like nothing is happening for months and months and months. And then all of a sudden, the building just goes up like overnight, it seems. Well, the building part can go rather fast, but it can take six to nine months of getting the blueprints and just laying it all out and then doing this underneath work that you will never see However, if the electrical and the plumbing and all the infrastructure work is not done properly, when that building is finally erected, it will be a total disaster and everybody will be upset. But Mabel did not want initially, she did not want to do all this unearthing and and the establishing and the, the drawing of the blueprints and then building out this infrastructure. She wanted to get right to it. She, she called it real and practical ideas and methods that she could immediately implement and apply to her life and marriage. Now, counseling never has to be devoid of that. You can do that in the very first counseling session. Here's some take-home things. Here's a tool or two that you can take home so that you can address this and begin making progress in your marriage. But the bulk of the work, and they have to understand this, it needs to be deeply theologically uh, initially how a person relates to God. And so talking about the gospel at that early point in counseling was counterintuitive for her. But because we're taking a slow and drawn-out process to counseling, which really mirrors more discipleship than the caricature of biblical counseling. Even though Mabel had spent 20 years thinking wrongly about God and marriage, she wanted me to fix her marriage today. The gospel approach to counseling, again, it made no sense. But when I raised the gospel as our starting point, and the solution to our problem, she told me that she understood the gospel, which, by the way, you might expect. She said that she became a Christian over two decades ago. Now, on one level, she was telling the truth. She did understand the gospel, but only pertaining to her salvation. So she had a, a salvific understanding of what, of what the gospel is, and she's not wrong. But I was not talking so much about the gospel pertaining to her salvation. I was talking about the gospel as it pertained to her sanctification. The life a person lives as they gradually transform into Christ's likeness, though I never want to assume that a person is a Christian. Mabel seemed to be a Christian, and so I assumed that she understood the gospel for her salvation, but did not understand how the gospel should rule her orthopraxy, her progressive sanctification, as she is incrementally growing up as a child of God. 
She believed that she needed the gospel to get saved, but it had little effect on her life after salvation. And because it had a little effect on her life after salvation, it was hard for her to mimic Christ. And so Christ, as I outlined earlier, that the way that he thought about his relationship with with his father, that he didn't enter into the relationship as, I need love. It's like, no, I need a relationship with you. And then based on that relationship with you, there will be benefits that will flow out like a word cloud, and love will be one of the things in that cloud. And because Christ was so rela- uh, so established in his relationship with his father, he wasn't driven or motivated by a need for love, which put him on the offense. It made him the aggressor. He was the one who was operating in active voice, to put it in uh, uh, grammar speak. And so when I asked Mabel what the gospel was, she said it was the good news. Uh, Yeah, and that is true. She's right, but she didn't fully understand the gospel as a person. The good news is what? The gospel for her was more about the proclamation of a message than a transformative way to live. And that's why it's so essential as we build this theological substructure, and then what comes out of that substructure is the gospel. And the gospel is not just a proclamation. It is a person. Out of sound theology, we see Christ standing front and center. He is a person that was standing upon sound theology, which made him non-manipulatable. And so the gospel is not just a proclamation. We can expand this succinct definition of person. The gospel is a person. We could say it this way. The gospel is the person and work meaning everything that Christ has done. It's not just Jesus, but it is his activity. The gospel is everything that Christ has ever done, Christ and his work. They go back to eternity past, and his person and activity stretch into everything that he will do in eternity. The gospel is eternal, eternity past, eternity future. The gospel has always existed. And the centerpiece of the gospel is all this activity around the cross, his, his birth, his life, his death, his, his resurrection, his ascension, God raising him from the dead. Christ is the gospel. So we examine the gospel that flows out of a sound theology, and then he is the one that we want to emulate. Now, you want to be very clear when you're working on a personal problem that Mabel has that is also flowing out into a marriage problem, which she definitely has. That sound theology is essential, and then she has to wrestle with practical applications of the gospel. And so this is chapter four. I titled it, Start with the Gospel from the Larger Booklet, Help, my marriage has grown cold. And again, I appeal to you to go to our store, and you there's no there's no snags whatsoever. You go to our store, and you get that free booklet, and I do want you to download it, and I want you to let others know so they can read through everything that I'm sharing. Now, these uh, podcasts and videos are extrapolated, so I'm giving a lot more information than what you'll just see in the uh, print word in the ebook. 
help my marriage has grown cold. And so perhaps you can let folks know that, that if you want to get more of a commentary on some of the points made in the trimmed ebook, uh, then let them know that they can watch every one of these nine chapters or listen to all nine of them uh, in addition to reading the book. Uh, from our store. So this is chapter four. Start with the gospel. I want to wrap up with a few questions. Number one, why must the gospel be our starting point in conflict resolution? Part of that answer is that, well, one, we have to understand what the gospel is. The gospel is Christ, the person and work of Christ. And if we don't understand the gospel or if we don't understand Christ, then we are, we are flying blind here. And so the gospel is absolutely essential. Number two, why must we understand that the gospel applies to our sanctification, not just our salvation? And I trust you would be able to answer that question. Number three, how had Mabel's craving for love hidden the truths of applying the gospel? applying Christ to her life and marriage. Now, as we've talked about, I've talked about extensively here in chapters 3 and 4, that she has morphed her desires into needs, which made her a manipulating soul. And Biff is the same way. Because she doesn't understand the gospel, she has the gospel inverted. And so she's thinking more about what others will do for her than what she will do Uh, for others. If she understood the gospel correctly, meaning practically, not just knowing it intellectually, but practically, she would see Christ standing on top of sound theology, and she would see how the life of Christ was exhibited throughout the four gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So the question is, how had Mabel's craving for love hidden the truths of applying the gospel or applying Christ to her life and marriage? Number four, When you think about relational conflict, do you begin with the gospel or what's wrong in the horizontal relationship? And I added this question here because, as I was saying earlier, Mabel wanted them tips and tricks and tools. She wanted something that she could apply so she could work on the horizontal plane. But she really wasn't understanding the essentialness of sound theology and the essentialness of understanding the gospel so that she could practically apply it on the horizontal plane. Chapter 4, start with the gospel. And if you would like more uh, on all things marriage, then I would encourage you to get my book here, Get Ready. This book is for any couple that is thinking about their dating, their courting, thinking about getting married. I do not recommend this book for just anybody that's dating, a 13, 14, 16-year-old, that they're a long way from getting married because I, I talk in more, let's say, a PG-13 way because this book is designed for those that are heading toward the altar and those who have are on the other side of the altar and they want to work on their marriage. Please consider getting this book, Get Ready, because it will help you tremendously as you work on your marriage. Also, go to the store, get help. My marriage has grown cold. Download it, use it, share it, benefit from it. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.